This is Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast, a creature of the internet drunk on its own power. Today we're discussing portrayals of Silicon Valley in TV and film, that God complex that goes with being a world leader of this sort, and feminist critiques of it. This was prompted by the HBO series Made for Love. I'm Mark Lintzmeyer, and I don't care that my devices are tracking me, so long as only the singularity, i.e. God in the machine, gets to look at my naughty bits. I'm Erica Spires, and I'm just convinced that people in California tend to want to create their own heaven on Earth because, well, they live in California. And I'm Brian Hurt, PMP's resident tech genius, except for the tech part and the genius part. (laughs) I know, I just had a bad dig on Californians. But there is something to that, right? Like, maybe not in the uh, Northern California part. There's there's some beautiful stuff there. But, you know, a lot of desert. People in deserts. They like to create things. That's the Silicon Valley part is the Northern part. You're saying that your critique of Silicon Valley does not apply to Silicon Valley. Is that what you're saying? Well, we're not just talking about Silicon Valley, though, are we? We are not. What are we talking about? Well, what prompted this was... The new HBO series Made for Love, which is also not in California, but it is in a vast desert landmass. Starring Kristen Miliotti, based on the novel by Alyssa Nutting, who is one of the writers and the body model, the face model, I should say. Or I'm wrong about that. It's the other writer, something Lee, that was the... Anyway, one of the writers is Diane. I thought it was set in California. I thought it was in Southern California. Don't they end up in Los Angeles? What's going on? How many things can we get wrong in the first three minutes of the show? (laughs) Do we know where they are? We don't know where they are. In their little oasis? definitely in a... Desert. In the desert. They're in fiction yeah. land. How about that? They are in a Southern Californian desert. Is that okay? Yeah, I don't know how if we should just erase everything we just said. Oh, good <laughs> God. That I'm sorry. None of it was good. Did either of you, it was fun. Did either of you read the book? Oh, no. No, did you? Oh, good for us. No, we're going into this with perfect ignorance. So let's wait to be corrected. A number of the articles we read preparing for this did mention the book and maybe changes that were made, but nothing really resonated since I hadn't read it. Yeah. So I think I feel so confused this morning because the original thought about this podcast idea was made for love, or that was the original inspiration, I should say. And then we got into, well, what about Silicon Valley? And then we thought about basically maniacal, what would you call them? The tech geniuses. Tech geniuses, gods in their own mind. So you guys mentioned devs, which we had given up on as an idea, I believe, about well, several months ago, because I was just bored tears by it, and I decided to stop watching. But because of this podcast, I want you to know that I have finished Devs. Oh, no, don't do that. <laughs> well, and you guys had both watched WeWork, this documentary, yes, which got me to watch that, which even though he's not a tech genius, the president of this company shares a lot of the God complex and the way that that hurts random people. <laughs> And of course, a lot of the media related to this is like, well, the five Steve Jobs documentaries or other things about Zuckerberg or Gates. And if we didn't have those real life models, Elon Musk, then we wouldn't have this fictional trope where it's become kind of the new James Bond villains is these ultra rich people that completely lose touch with their humanity because they have access to all the money in the world and all the technology the best scientists in the world. It's like they're our new version of uh, Dr. Frankenstein, except instead of just being off in a lab doing crazy things because they've been rejected, they all called me mad. They all called me mad. They get to do things that are instantly become present in mass society with potentially horrible consequences. So this is very scary to us and also something that seems ripe to make fun of. 
It's interesting you brought that up, Mark, because I was absolutely thinking that this is our generation's Mad Professor movies. The sci-fi has gone from like making monsters to creating a society based around technology, and that somehow goes completely wrong. Which, of course, is the premise of Black Mirror as a whole. It's science fiction, but it's all either near or far extensions of the social technology and screen technology that we have. Mark, I was really thinking about Lex Luthor as someone who didn't always totally make sense as a villain. And although his latest incarnation in the new DC movies isn't that great, the Jesse Eisenberg, they made him a tech genius. He's now not just a tycoon, he's actually a tech tycoon. And it makes more sense that way, even though it wasn't that good. And of course, he's a tech genius. And it doesn't hurt that we also see Zuckerberg when we see that actor because of the social network. Mm -hmm. Eric, I'd like to get back to devs because I didn't mean for this to be an assignment for you to finish watching that show. But now that you have, or do you feel justified in not finishing it earlier at least? Yes. Here's the funny part. Okay. This is what I thought. I was like, so I had three episodes left, right? I was like, that's not too much. And then I started watching it and I remembered how boring I felt it was and how slow it was. So then I went on YouTube and I thought, I'm just going to watch like a recap show. I tried three different recap shows of devs. And I have to tell you, they were all more boring than devs. So I went back <laughs> and just finished it. The only thing I skipped was the first half of episode six, because I kind of had enough recap to know where I was coming into. Which was the two conversations episode, one on the porch and one in the kitchen? That was episode six, yes. Man, that was a dark, dark hour of television just in terms of enjoyment not particularly the plot or anything i think the main actor uh, sonoya mizuno was so successful playing a robot in (laughs) ex machina that they just told her do that yeah ms robot (laughs) as the (laughs) listen his work is absolutely beautiful to look at and to listen to So it's not that I don't appreciate the experience that I get in terms of visuals and sound. But in terms of pacing, I don't think he's ever had any lessons on why pacing is important. Or he did it all on purpose and he thought it was going to work and it just didn't. Because I'll tell you how I feel about devs right now. That's how every freaking scene was. (laughs) I thought you were looking something up on your computer while you... (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, spit it out. If everything is important, nothing is important. (laughs) There was a good two hour movie in those six hours and 49 minutes. Yes, I think that I'm sure of it. That could have been very successful. And I'm desperate to like his work. I just wish I did. Well, and there were some really good things about devs. Like there really were. When you look at it, just like it's freaking gorgeous. Every shot is beautiful. He knows what he wants in terms of capturing specific looks. It was just really the dialogue and pacing that really had me. And it didn't really make sense. Let's be honest. I remember liking, you know, I haven't watched it since a year ago or whenever that was out, but enjoying the sci-fi element of it enough, even though it was bonkers, but it related to things in philosophy that I kind of wanted, at least my co-host over there or us to have a conversation about that. I think it was bonkers enough that I no longer even remember much of it, except that it was sort of Laplace's demon of, you know, somebody that has all the data and can thereby compute the future. But then there was some move into possible worlds and indeterminism. And, you know, so there's some interesting things to chew on, 
but it, yeah, at least it is good for our purposes in terms of this being, what's the name of the Parks and Rec guy character? <laughs> the Ron Swanson character? Nick Offerman? Oh, his character it? though, his character name. Um, Forrest. There we go. Clearly there's murdering going on. <laughs> so <he's>, <laughs> he is an evil genius in that way. Does he capture well, like, He's not funny in the way that kind of almost all the other examples that we get here are people who are, even just because of their sheer geekery, even if they're evil, are funny and relatable in how pathetic they are, as opposed to this guy who, again, maybe it's just the filmmaking that we're going to take this very seriously. It would have been far more interesting if he just had moments where he just got super wacky. Because then at least you have something very different than what Sonoya Mizuno is giving us, the character of Lily. But instead, when they're both speaking so slowly with so many pauses, you just absolutely lose interest. I do, at least. I hated the science fiction in it. And I really was liking the program the first couple episodes until it became clear of what it was doing. And as I was baffled by the hollow earth of the Godzilla movies, I said, well, at least it makes more sense than devs. So tell me what didn't work about the science fiction, because I have some thoughts about it, but you're the expert. I'm not an expert. I just wasn't. You're the sci-fi expert, Brian. I wasn't buying it. And I feel like it's the sort of thing that it's maybe the same problem with the filmmaking is someone isn't telling this guy no to say, you know what? That is such a dumb idea. And maybe like think of something better than this. The idea of having a completely deterministic universe as long as you can calculate it. It's like, you know, I'm pretty sure quantum theory left that behind a long time ago. But if you want to do that, great. But I don't have to like it. In fact, I am totally at liberty to think it's stupid. So I did. And I just stuck with the show. But like, no way. Come on. Don't even. Would either of them be able to have the consciousness if there is a multiverse theory in place that they are in the dev system? Or would they just exist and that would be the end of it? I mean, to me, that would have made a lot more sense. There's a multiverse where they know it and in a multiverse where they don't. There's a multiverse for everything, which is actually at odds with determinism. I mean, the whole thing, I just hated that part <laughs> I think it. season two, though, is going to introduce the Fox X-Men into the Marvel Universe. I think that's why <laughs> that will... <laughs> Can we not talk about devs? I was going to say, our, we were originally supposed to talk about Made for Love. Let's transition first maybe to Silicon Valley. A much more congenial way to get this trope. There's Gavin Belson is the Matt... Matt Ross's character as the evil CEO of Huli, whose excesses and yogic retreats and all these things are a really nice peppering along with, of course, our main characters are also supposed to be something like this, but they're up and coming. We're not seeing what kind of zoos they build in their backyards or whatever the things that the ultra rich and psychotic do. There was a lost opportunity in Silicon Valley, which it was, of course, no fault of anybody's. It was the death of the actor Christopher Evan Welch, who played Peter Gregory in season one. And it was clear that we had these two different geniuses that I think were stand-ins for... He was sort of the Steve Jobs type, whereas Gavin Belson's character was... I mean, it was his company is more of a Google-type company. And whether he is supposed to be Sergey Brin or Bill Gates or something, it's hard to know. But having a counterpoint of a couple different ways of being the, I don't want to say evil genius, but the genius billionaire who pulls strings in different ways and have their excesses 
kind of spelled out in a very large way for and imposed upon others around them. I thought that was such an interesting dynamic that unfortunately just had to disappear when they lost one of the actors. Mm-hmm. So his replacement was Lori Bream was the name of the character who's a venture capitalist. So not exactly a tech billionaire, but in just in terms of bringing in, are there women who can stand in for this trope? Because what Made for Love sort of makes clear is that this trope seems very much mixed with boys club, toxic masculinity, geeky guy. You know, there's all these different nerd tropes in there, but you don't see a character. I guess there are a few like side characters in Silicon Valley in terms, you know, they are the programmers and they are socially maladjusted in the way the main guys are, but it's mostly about dudes. And so it's sort of open to a feminist critique of it, which is what Made for Love certainly is. Having this Spock-like Lori Bream character who really seems like a true psychopath is at least a nice thing that they used to replace the character who died. Yeah, I, I never ended up watching that documentary about the woman with, there was like a CEO who was crazy. You're talking about the Theranos one. Yeah. Was it Out for Blood? Yeah, I'm that's trying it. I remember the name of it on HBO. It was excellent, super interesting. I wonder if there was a bit of that and then also Marissa Mayer from Yahoo. Mm-hmm. But certainly, I think Laurie was an excellent character. And I actually love Gavin as well, because there were moments, he wasn't so crazy that you couldn't identify with the character as a human. He had moments of humanity, but then he would absolutely lose again. (laughs) He was able to see the path. He just wasn't able to take it, right? I mean, he just, he wasn't a total, you know, I don't know that Laurie was a psychopath. I just think she was a sociopath and someone on the spectrum, maybe. But yeah. I mean, is there any true normie in this whole program? Is is Monica the only one that we're really supposed to be able to relate to? So. As like, if you were inserted into this world, like, at whose eyeballs would you see it through? And I guess it's her. I agree. I also appreciated what they did, where they kind of started out where you thought that she might be the love interest, but then it completely goes a different way. And she's just a character who represents us. I think you're totally right. Also, it was freaking funny. The whole thing was funny. It was about tech geniuses, but it was a ridiculous comedy. And to me, that makes it infinitely more watchable, or at least watchable over several episodes and seasons. I mean, what did you think of the last season in terms of, it wasn't just about the stakes of, is their business going to succeed or not? But is the world going to be destroyed by the singularity? Did that seem like a satisfying way to bring it to a climax? Or was that just kind of too much and out of the spirit of what came before? I was all right with that. It was still a little ridiculous. And the whole thing was ridiculous from the beginning. And I think the traditional part of my brain wanted it to have a more happy ending for everybody. But you come to realize that it isn't quite going to turn out that way for any of them. And I think the coda was totally spot on of them being forgotten, which is exactly right. Of course, if you don't stay on top, you are absolutely nowhere in Silicon Valley. And I think that was a very good way to actually end the whole program. Well, now that we're 20 minutes in, I think someone should mention what Made for Love actually is, because we haven't gotten there. And that's, as Mark said, the reason we're having this discussion or what prompted our discussion. What's the nickel version? Erica, do you want to synopsize? Or? Um, I could try. Brian's usually our synopsizer. I really like watching you try. <laughs> no, I'm so bad. Yes, I'm so bad at it. So shitty. I'm so sorry. <laughs> please, please go ahead. You, you made me embarrassed. <laughs> Mark, go ahead. We just come in 10 years into this relationship between this couple of Byron Gogol, who is a character like we've been describing, and Kristen Malati's character, who is named 
Hazel Green. Hazel Green. Two colors. Uh, and she has been kept in basically a cage, mm-hmm. the hub mm-hmm. that they both live in, that there's a lots of virtual reality going on, so it can seem like you're outside. And her life is very carefully controlled to keep her in top physical and supposedly emotional condition. But clearly she's being coddled with no freedom. And so we come upon her as she is escaping this situation. And it is revealed shortly within the first episode that the thing that prompted her to escape is that she just had a chip implanted in her brain that is now monitoring everything she senses, as well as giving indications of physiological things about her that would indicate how she's reacting to those things. All right. In the future, we're just going to go straight to the IMDB one sentence. (laughs) A young woman on the run after 10 years in a suffocating marriage to a tech billionaire suddenly realizes that her husband has implanted a revolutionary monitoring device in her brain that allows him to track her every move played by our nation's treasure, Kristen Malati. She's awesome. I got to say, I, with a few reservations, really, really enjoyed the show tremendously. Mm -hmm. It was just long enough and interesting enough and funny enough with some twists and a couple misguided decisions, but that's like any program, that's okay. And I, more than anything, I did enjoy that Byron Gogol, although not easy to relate to, is definitely not a one-dimensional character. And he could have been, and it would have been easy enough I don't think it would have been successful. Billy Magnuson was not an actor who was really known to me, so I was just seeing the character, which was great. I've seen things that he's in, but it's just I hadn't keyed in on him, I guess, at all. How did you enjoy this program? I think it definitely had that appropriateness of that sci-fi element of we're not sure if everything is going to be okay by the end. You didn't leave with a warm, fuzzy feeling at all. The characters, the journeys were so enjoyable throughout that I was still definitely considered a comedy, but with a dark side, for sure. Billy Magnuson was fantastic. I have seen him in a couple things, but it was this wonderful feature of this guy who you first look at him and you're like, oh, this handsome, smart, bro-y guy. And then you just realize how much of an outsider nerd he is. And he's just trying so hard all the time. And I found myself rooting for him, not just him, but like for them to work out even though it was totally fucked the way that he treated her. Because I'm like, but he means well, but he's trying and he just doesn't know. And she needs to, she doesn't necessarily need to be with him, but if she's going to, she could possibly teach him how to be a better person. So yeah, it was wonderfully complex in the character portrayals. How about you, Mark? So I started watching this with my wife and watched the first episode. And I was kind of thinking like, maybe I don't need to do this, you know, at least not with her that it seems like it's just going to be a big bummer. And it's just, yeah, that's terrible doing that to a woman. And that's what the whole show was just going to be about. I would not have enjoyed it at all, but it took such good comic turns and the whole relationship with her father, played by Ray Romano, and his synthetic partner, and adding in her childhood friend. Yeah, there are a lot of elements that were really good about this. The more it explored that this is going to be like Lost. This is going to be exploring their backstories. And we still only kind of have the surface of at least his backstory, which seems like it might be pretty interesting. So apparently it's not been announced whether there's going to be a season two or not, but the creators hope there will be a season two. I don't know how this finished, like where the novel ends up. I would be surprised if this is the way the novel ends. That would be very strange. 
Well, there's already been a great precedent for going beyond a novel. I mean, at least one, which is The Handmaid's Tale, which has been written, I think, in the image of Margaret Atwood quite well. They did an excellent job with casting, I think. That is something that I think was definitely missing in Devs, is there was possibly quite a bit of miscasting, or at least of the director having such a hold on it of like, do it this way, that he didn't let his actors actually do what they do best sometimes. And this to me felt like I've seen Kristen Milioti in enough things that I was like, I can see the choice that she made here. And that is such a Kristen choice. And Ray Romano as well. I loved him in Parenthood. You got to see so much of what he can actually do in that. And I'm so glad he's still out there and doing things that are not just pure comedy. So you can see that the actors had fun on set. You can't see Jerry Seinfeld doing that role or something. I feel like he would just like look at the camera a little bit and be like, ah. Just He would wink a little too much. I'm just going to cast my vote for not wanting another season of the show. I think it ended in a really good black mirror-y sort of place. And all these little articles that said it ended on a cliffhanger. There's got to be a season two. I'm like, was that a cliffhanger? I think it ended at a pretty good stopping point. It didn't make a ton of sense, but I'll live with it. It didn't make a ton of sense. What do you mean? Are we really spelling out the ending? I guess we didn't give any sort of... Yeah, we're not talking about the ending. Why not? We said it wasn't super happy. But I think if you watch even halfway into it, you're like, this is not going to resolve in another three episodes or whatever. Like, this is... Everyone go take four hours to watch this and come back and listen to us as we spoil the ending. No, I don't know that we should. I will say that I did let out one groan of sorrow during the program, and that was during... Hazel's conversation with Diane, where, you know, a metaphor is really best when you just say it out loud for your audience, for your for the dummies. <laughs> when she says to her father's synthetic partner, you're just like me, or I'm just like you. And yeah, I got it when I first saw the sex doll that you're both trapped in different ways, and you're the same thing. And you're a physical representation of what you're going through. But okay, for those who aren't paying attention, just so you all know, that made me mad. But What are you going to do? It can't all be perfect. So the thing that didn't work as well for me was the various hench people that were following her around and trying to help her. And I just sort of didn't care about them. And it sort of introduces a complication that Gogol basically is murdering them at some point. But they're clearly still going to be around if there's a second season. But they've created like they've been put in the pasture in part of the hub. And how are they going to live there? Like, I don't care. Like, I don't care about these characters. It was just kind of a joke that they were off in the way that they were. I don't know. It was just a weak spot as far as the whole thing for me in terms of caring and connecting with what was going on at all. Whereas his henchman who follows him around doing his bidding throughout, like, I love that guy. He's great. He's very funny. He's in a a little show my parents are really into called uh, Life in Pieces. Also very funny in that. Bennett, is that the character or is it? Yes, played by Caleb Foote. And the other henchman, Herringbone, who's the actor, I don't know how to say his name. I'm sorry, it was Herringbone that I'm talking about. That's what I thought you said you liked him. Dan? No. Bakedal? Bakedal? His mere presence introduces a goofiness 
Yes. Like, I think he has his own universe of, like, if he's in something, it's a comedy. Like, that's how you know it's a comedy. Not that it's 30 minutes or that it's funny. It's just that he is in it. I think it was it the first or second episode where he gets his fingers chopped off. Like, that was the <laughs> unexpected moment that I, like, I think that's when I finally was like, yeah, this is a show I want to watch because I wasn't expecting that to happen. And there were consequences the whole way through of that. They're just like rotting in his cooler throughout the whole show. And he keeps them. I don't know. And he it keeps was, going uh, back. He keeps trying for more. He has no possessions in his life except his fingers at a certain point. Like, <laughs> he's left in a hotel with just a cooler with his would have got to be gnarly fingers inside. Uh, All right. So you liked it as a comic relief and as something. Oh, yeah. Whereas mm-hmm. I felt like it was a needless distraction or something. I think what got me started on this whole topic at some point, the idea came up to contrast this with Silicon Valley was that article in Slate that we probably all read. HBO's new series found a better way to satirize Silicon Valley. And that was, I thought, an interesting article. I had read other critiques of Silicon Valley before that technology was moving too fast for the show and it had to change what it was in order to be successful. In a lot of ways that the political landscape changed too quickly for Veep, that Veep had to change what it was because being ridiculous was no longer relevant when we had Donald Trump in the White House because it was we had already gone what was beyond the pale. We had to completely recalibrate ourselves. I don't know that I agree with the premise of the Slate article that it was a better way to satirize it. It was a completely different way. I mean, it was such a personal story compared with what was really about the machinations of the industry. I really appreciated both Made for Love and Silicon Valley for the stories that they were. I think that Made for Love might end up being a little bit more timeless or resonate more in five years when it's done in a way that Silicon Valley is already feeling pretty dated. And as (laughs) the article points out, this is before we saw the internet as a means for really speeding the end of our democracy. Hmm. There have been dark sides of the internet since before the internet, even right. Even in the pre-internet Usenet news groups were full of darkness, but I think it's ability to be exercised and cause real big lasting damage has become seen in a way that I don't think you could launch Silicon Valley the way it was when it came out. You couldn't do it right now. I think it would have to be a different critique. It just seemed like constantly in Silicon Valley, there were there were things that, oh, this is going to completely nullify the privacy of every person on Earth. Like very much still the things that we're worrying about. I had wished that my son had gotten into that while he was still living here so that I could have an excuse to rewatch it because I don't think I will. It was too lengthy an experience and there are too many other things to watch to go back to that. You're right, but it was a little bit like watching The Lone Gunman, the X-Files spinoff, if either of you watched any of that, because there was always the possibility the tech would do that, but it never actually did. Just the way that in The Lone Gunman, there was a chance a jumbo jet was going to hit the World Trade Center, but it didn't. And then like the world caught up with it. And it's like, yep, these are things that can happen. And now we can point to an attempted overthrow of our government and huge portions of our country that don't believe that we have a legitimate president right now. I mean, these things have happened now and they aren't just things that could happen, but they're a little absurd. And at the end of the day, they don't. So I just think there's a a naivete built into that program that we are beyond now. 
Well, you're saying that Made for Love is such a personal story. You know, as I was reading this interview with the writers, that, yeah, it's just about these relationships. And it's not actually about the overall scariness of tech at all. That these are just sort of a plot excuse to talk about the disconnection between people and this attempt to bridge the disconnection by literally plugging the brains together. But of course, that is half the critique of modern technology is not just that it's causing the death of our democracy and things, but that it is exacerbating the existential divisions that are always already between us and how it's already hard to communicate with anybody. And, you know, now we have Zoom and things, devices in our way, making it worse. It made me think about the answer I've had for quite some time to, if I could choose a superpower, what would it be? And my answer has been true empathy, but I can turn it on and off at will because you don't want to feel what somebody else is feeling for that long of a time. There's also the ethical question of, do they want you to feel what they feel? But I still have questions really about how his device worked, because it seemed like if he didn't have the goggles on, he wasn't experiencing what Hazel experienced. And I thought it was more supposed to be a two-way street. Did they explain that that was because it wasn't a complete set yet, and only she had the chip? Is that why? Yeah, did I miss something that actually happened in the middle, that he got his chip turned on? He was going to. And this was supposed to... He was going to and didn't. Okay, see, I thought maybe he did. Sits up in his chair and it's not clear that he's gotten it or not gotten it. And there's a bit of a fake out, but it's explained that he was sitting up with an epiphany, not with... But not with fiffany, an epiphany. Oh, yeah. Okay, thank you, Erica. You're right. (laughs) (laughs) Do you recall how it actually worked? Could he just see what she was seeing and hear what she was... Thinking, or could he actually feel what she was feeling if and only if he had the goggles on? I think he couldn't feel what she was feeling. He could see... Yeah, there were readouts. The readouts about her, yes, about her biometrics. Well, in the beginning, that was the case. But after she got the chip in, it was different, no? Right, when she's looking at the bartender and they are seeing lines on the screen and they're telling Byron that she's aroused. Yeah. For example, I mean, so they're clearly tracking her where they're inferring what she's feeling from her biometrics. So he could see what she was feeling. He could identify it, but he wouldn't feel it. Now, if he had had the chip in, would that have gone both ways? Or would she then need the readouts as well? Or would they just be able to communicate? It would have been temporary because it sounds like it would have killed her. Well, you know, but if it worked. Yeah, I think it's not totally detailed exactly how it goes. If it's something that you actually feel or something that you know and then can respond to. Okay. Yeah, because him just having a separate chip that she can then pull up her app, like, what would be the problem with that? Other than, you know, in terms of it's not actually connecting if it is just brain to screen and brain to screen and each person can see. Exactly. Via the screen, the other's brain. So perhaps something to be explored. But yet it seems like it would be a pretty weird twist in the plot of like, we're going to go ahead and turn it on. And so we can just because maybe other characters can investigate the technology in its full form, something like that. Also, you wouldn't really be capable, I think, of feeling, this is a philosophical question, would you actually be able to have true empathy with another human while still holding on to your own sense of self, your own feelings and thoughts? I feel like at that point, you would get so much information from that other person, like how could you ever know what your own were? Well, isn't that like the being John Malkovich thing? God, it's been so long since I've seen it. What is it? If you don't have agency, if you're just seeing out of the person's eyes, Mm. then you're still going to have separate thoughts that you're Mm -hmm. reacting to those thoughts. You're not actually able to do anything. But yeah, this is a legitimate question in terms of 
in our personal examined life, personal identity episode of what if your right brain and your left brain are separated and they're both conscious and they both think that they're you and things like that. And come on, I want some ideas. What do you guys think about it? I was looking up a episode of a podcast called Invisibilia, which mm-hmm. I, I can't find the episode, but there was one where someone had a disorder where they can't help feeling physical sensations of what other people are going through yes. to the point where if they see someone eating, they start feeling a swallowing sensation. It's not synesthesia, but it's got to be related to it somehow. And it sounds absolutely horrifying and awful. To your question about picking a superpower, I don't know that there's a right answer, but I think yours is the wrong one, Erica. I would hate that so much. What if, what if you <laughs> added to that the ability to then take somebody's feelings and push them onto somebody else? So like you will understand what this other person, oh. you know, it's the, the arbitrator at the uh, peace talks. Oh, I like that. That would be very useful. Has there not been a sci-fi thing that has done that? There must have been. I don't know, but if there hasn't been, then Brian? How you're not choosing invisibility <laughs> or the ability to stop time. I'm just, you're both perplexing me. No, because that's the, the problem, right? Is like so often in our society, we don't understand one another. And so you have all these contentious people. Imagine taking the political landscape right now and being like, this is how this person feels. And that person has to live with it and vice versa. Yeah, yeah, blah, blah. I don't even know what you're talking about, Erica. <laughs> Hell with you. <laughs> that's interesting, Mark. I don't know. I'd be interested to know if that has been explored in media. I definitely sympathize with, here's another, the Buddhist starting point. Life is suffering. Why is it suffering? Mm -hmm. Because there's always something even just physically annoying you at any given point. And this is what this character, Byron, has created the dome to try to counteract that real life is annoying. There's something that really resonated about, of course, this character is pathetic and not being able to deal with that because that's just reality. But in terms of what superpower would you want? Well, what this character wanted as a superpower by using the money that could have made him into Batman was to remove himself from the irritations of compromise of every sort, not just with people, but with the environment itself, which of course, there's some built-in limits on that. Well, and it comes with the punishment of complete isolation. Mm. And anyone that you try to isolate with you becomes your prisoner, which is obviously what happened to Hazel. There is a common thread, I think, among all these evil tech geniuses, which what makes us enjoy watching them is they're always revealed to really not be geniuses at all, right? They are good at something. And whether that thing is making money or inventing some kind of technology, which is a a really specific kind of thing, or maybe just getting a little lucky with it or being able to like read the zeitgeist and what people are going to want. They have the same flaws and are just as dumb as the rest of us when it comes to whether it's emotional intelligence or relationships or just making destructive decisions. And that's what we want in our villains. You know, we see these billionaires and I think there's a lot of delight in seeing them get their comeuppance, even if uh, Jeff Bezos loses half his money and he's still one of the five richest people in the world because he's just that rich. But at the same time, people really took a lot of delight in the failure of his marriage. I'm not saying I did, but I understand why. But you're not saying you didn't? No, I'm just saying I understand why that was a thing. I mean, just recently there was this attempt to create a big European soccer league and it fell apart. And someone made the comment that all these owners are billionaires and they confuse being rich with being smart. And 
I don't think there is any true smart that goes into any of this. I just think there are a lot of skills that come together in the right way and a fair amount of luck and a fair amount of drive and other things. So, of course, it's great to see that these are people who can suffer. And Mark, you started off talking about James Bond villains with a few exceptions, right? By the end of the show, they're buried under something or vaporized or shot into space or whatever it is. So we all know what happens to the villains in the end. The evolution of this from just billionaire to billionaire tech person, that it was the Wall Street was the source of evil, or before that, just the oligarchy of rich people, the the nobles (laughs) conspiring against the common people. We've shifted this as things have gone on. There's still a lot of the Wall Street entrepreneurial thing built into this. That's why it's different than the, you know, beautiful mind, the stuff we were talking about in our chess episode of those kind of geniuses who could not run a company. And maybe we should kind of use as our last topic here, this WeWork documentary, the making and breaking of a $47 billion unicorn that you guys had suggested that I watch, which has somebody that is definitely not a genius and not even good at tech, but has this arc of being really charismatic and creating this vision and then getting rich enough that he can live this crazy lifestyle And not to give away the ending, but he's still very rich and did not participate in the documentary. And it's just the company that crashed and he got a nice golden parachute. And so it's more about the hubris of the enterprise and specifically hooking up with mega financiers that push a lot of money into your crummy business that you then can't actually make a profit on. So if they stop giving you more money and you're so overextended that the thing crashes, which is not surprising. But it's a nice business lesson. But it's a self-reinforcing cycle going on of people are giving money to this guy. And the people who are giving the money are seen as people who should be smart. And so other people say, well, they wouldn't be giving him money if he wasn't onto something. And so it feeds on itself. But then, of course, it unravels just as quickly. It only takes the richest person pulling out to make everyone else pull out as well. It's partly good TV. Not great TV, actually. I thought it was a little too long. But It's good TV in part because of the failure, right? We're not seeing documentaries about the slow and steady, very successful business models that have managed to the billionaires who, you know, make things like the Square app that lets everybody actually lets vendors take credit cards on their cell phones. And they've made a fortune. And that's great. And we all use Square all the time. And it's just a thing. And it's wonderful. And are they great people? Terrible? Interesting? I don't know. It's just an actual success, apparently. Like, what do I know about it? It's just I pulled it out of the air. It's not sexy or interesting. So, of course, why is there going to be an HBO documentary about that? We want to hear about the emperor's new clothes and the massive hubris and how it comes crashing down spectacularly. The WeWork, to me, it made me think a lot about the people who garner a following and people who follow. And how I feel badly for both of them in different ways. Like you said, this guy didn't seem very smart at all, but he was told he was. He was told that he was this and that, and he believed it. And that made everybody believe it. That made everybody want to get better. And at the core of this mission, their core values were not to make money. Their core values were to change the world and make it a better place, which is usually not a great way to make money, right? That's typically not a great business model or not one that investors are excited about, I should say. And so, yeah, it's no surprise as you watch it that he got in over his head and didn't know what he was doing and became basically a cult leader. I mean, the whole thing basically felt like a cult documentary. Yes. 
watching them be outside and in the pouring rain and the mud and just saying we work and yelling it the whole time. It was just weird. So I don't have a problem with the software company that I used to work for over a decade ago was our motto is do good, make money, have fun. And sure, the corporate culture was actually fairly toxic. I mean, it was smart people, but it was like, you know, the normal we've taken on way too much work and you're going to put in a lot of hours and we just expect everybody to have the same devotion and love to the cause as the founder does. So it wasn't a great fit for human beings or at least me. Please visit Mark's LinkedIn page to find out which company that was. <laughs> but you could see, as long as the mission is not taken so seriously that there are these mandatory benders and things that are described, bacchanalia, and everyone must show up and listen to this excessive, excessive preaching that is just kind of stupid. <laughs> like, I know people that work in cooperative spaces and There are some good ideas to be had there about how we can all share a printer and maybe we can have a common knowledge base so that when you have to apply for the legal forms, there can be a people that can help you. But like there are serious limits to this. And we didn't hear at enough length his manifestos to say how those translated into the actual business practices. But it seemed like, you know, certainly a lot of hot hot air. And I'm not sure why most of the people involved wouldn't have seen that immediately. It was just casting that all these dupes were like, you know, 20 year olds and they just didn't know better. Yeah. I think there could have been a business model in there too that worked. What is it called in Silicon Valley when you let the people stay at your house and you're giving the initial seed money? An incubator. Incubator. Okay. So if this had been more of an incubator because he provided a great workspace and all these people, and that's, that's what it looks like it was going to go into, right? When mm-hmm. all the people in the beginning of the documentary were saying, oh, I started this company and this company and this company. And they were all working in the same space together. The ideas that could have come from that convergence of those minds could have been great. And he may have been able to figure out something that, you know, he gets a little bit of that those profits if those companies do well. I clearly don't know a lot about money because I know it's not like profits, but maybe he could get some sort of... Stocks. We'll say stocks. We'll say points. Oh, yeah, that's we'll the word. Figure that means something. <laughs> we'll get some points on the back end. I don't know. It seems like he could have done something with that. And that didn't happen. Instead, it was like, actually, working together is so great. Why don't we live together too and make it mandatory that you hang out together? (laughs) Like, no, big red flags. I don't think usually any of that works. And I think the more I hear people say that you're family with people you work with, the less I want to be a part of those organizations. It was a little ambiguous in parts in the documentary between the company itself, the things he was requiring of his employees. And I think even the we live thing and the schooling thing that was going to be launched as a part of that were definitely like not even everybody worked with the company. It wasn't mandatory. Everybody has to live with us, but it was creating a cult within, you know, an inner circle within the cult, but then inviting every, all the customers to be part of the family as well. And so the massive weekend long party is, you know, to all the associates, it's not just people who work for the company. It's, consider everybody who basically rents space from us (laughs) that you are part of the family or when investors came through you had to go hang out in the common space in we live right it's just the relationships were so murky and weird that you just knew something sketchy you know something sketchy is going on because you're watching a documentary about it but the harder part is to people who were living it probably knew too but they also saw benefits of it or had expectations, certainly the people who did work for the company, right? They had the options. And to this day, I mean, I know people who are working for no salary because 
they think they don't need it. And if the company takes off, they're going to be some kind of billionaire. And that, that won't change. It makes you sad because people, and I'm including myself in this, want something to believe in so badly. And yes, people work for free when they believe in something. But even a great leader can fail people when it comes to that, much less somebody who's not that great of a leader and takes the golden parachute and leaves everybody else out to dry. To me, my favorite person in that entire documentary was the lawyer who knew (laughs) from the beginning. He's like, yeah, this is kind of weird. Never been in a culture like this, but like I just laughed at them and went along with it for a while. He had the right idea. And I guess built into all these things we've been discussing to a greater or lesser extent is this idea. I thought maybe the social dilemma was a thing that would be on our list. I watched the beginning of it and it wasn't really that relevant. But the main message of that documentary, which is in the tech world, we are the product. We are the customers to a lesser extent. But, you know, clearly in the WeWork thing, he was, as the documentary puts it, he was sort of selling his employees as like the image, you know, using them to say, you should also be cool and sign on to this Ponzi scheme was basically of passing the coolness back. I don't know if that <laughs> metaphor works. You can run out of coolness if you're at the bottom. That was my attempt to make this all to come together as a coherent one story. But I don't know, this might be one of those ideas that like the initial trope, the idea that this is the new kind of villain and this is the thing we're scared of. I don't know if there's a lot deeper to dig on that. <laughs> you know, We talked about some specifics. Well, I think it's always laudable when we, at the end of our hour-long discussion, can say what a shallow topic it is. <laughs> Definitely not at the beginning. Let's. Sorry, listeners. I don't find it to be a shallow topic, you guys. Me neither. What are you talking about, Mark? Quit saying that, Brian. You're just agreeing with whomever. <laughs> you're just riding on bandwagons. You're right. You're right. We have sucked all the cool from our listeners. <laughs> it's clearly something that is happening in pop culture, has been for, for some time. And there are several reasons for that. We're fascinated by it. We're scared by it. But I think at the end of the day, this topic, we had a lot of really surface level philosophical discussions about. And that's always fun. And I'll say I did very little preparation in part because I had seen all these things. And clearly, either there's just a ton of them, but the fact that I had seen so many, this is something... I must be at least somewhat interested in, including the documentaries. And I think having lived in Silicon Valley and having worked for one tech company while I was there informed my interest a little bit. So I'm glad we had a chance to talk about this. I'll be curious to see what our next type of big, powerful person is. Maybe it won't be in my lifetime, but a new brand of someone that we'll put in as our supervillains. We'll see what they are. All right. Thanks, listeners. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening. Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Get bonus content for every episode at patreon.com slash prettymuchpop. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life podcast network, and it's also presented by openculture.com.